Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to this week's podcast. I am sitting here with the wonderful Peter Linus. Is, is that correct? Have I said that correct? That is correct. That is yeah. correct. And it's great to be here. It's so nice to be here. And we've got you in Glasgow. You know, we've got you in the, on the right part of the UK. <laughs> um, you know, much as our Northern Ireland friends, um, I'm sure, would disagree. But um, it's so good to have you. And you are, you've got a new role. I have a new role, so I was, yeah, so I work with Evangelical Alliance, I was the Northern Ireland director, love that, love Northern Ireland, Uh, but I've now got a UK director role, so I work Uh alongside Gav Calver, who leads the organisation, and uh, now I pick up some more in terms of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and a lot of our kind of public facing work. Yeah, and and how are you finding that transition, like, are you, is is it been a bit of a culture shock, you know, obviously having to do stuff across the UK, or? Yeah, so definitely more travel, practically, and that's a bit of a shift. And uh, but I'm loving it. I have to say, I love getting to see what God's doing in the church across yeah. the UK. You hear different stories. I love always loved getting out across the church. Yeah. Obviously, it was mainly Northern Ireland and a bit into the UK. But the, so the UK bit's grown. So being in Scotland a few weekends ago, I'll be back in another few weeks. So yeah. I'm loving getting traveling a bit more. Uh, and just stuff is happening. But it's yeah. different in each of the nations. It's different in different parts of the UK. So want to hear more about that, but also speak into engage. So I, I have to say, I'm loving it. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, Peter, like I say, we're really glad to have you. And one of the things we wanted to chat about that we're really looking at is, is your leadership journey. So where where would you say that started for you? What was like your your early tastes of leadership, would you wow, say? Wow, that's a great question going way back. Um, so I guess my the, certainly the shaping influences came in my family. Um, so we went to a pretty small Baptist church. And from a fairly early stage, I probably was involved in certain bits of leadership, you know, mm. boys' brigade and different things, yeah. um, getting into that. But my dad had set up and run a business, um, so fairly entrepreneurial, and that rubbed off on all of us. We were all interested in what it was to kind of lead in mm. that sense, to set new things up, to get to just to take the initiative. Yeah. Um, so he was really influential on all of our upbringings, particularly, you know, so for me. Um, and in that church context, I got a reasonable amount of scope to be able to begin leading at a relatively young age. Um, so the journey began there. It's definitely evolved over time since yeah. then. But yeah, that, that was the earliest stages of it was, was church leadership at, at the young level. Yeah. So so you've been in church kind of like most of your life, I'm guessing, the majority of your life. Yeah, yeah. mom and dad were both Christians. Yeah. So that was a huge influence on us, uh, all of us as kids. It was two brothers. So uh, and then, yeah. And so I became like I have this memory of becoming a Christian at eight. I remember becoming Christian kind of before that, I'm sure. And since that, again, you sort of went yeah. through some of that. Uh, but I had the kind of distinctive moment of, of kind of praying and inviting Jesus into my life when I was eight years old. Wow, okay. Um, so, yeah, it was quite... I just remember being with my mom and, and praying that through. So parents were huge. Uh-huh. And their, their faith was vital to them, like it was real. That was probably one of the distinctives I realized early on, that lots of other people took their kids to church. I mean, they loved Jesus. They were in church, but... For mom and dad, like it was really real. They set up a youth discipling organization still to this day. 100, 700 people, young people go out this year uh, around the world, having done a six-month discipleship course, and right. then head off somewhere. Uh, so they set up this thing, Exodus. It was really yeah. influential in the lives of many young people. They've always just invested in, in young people, so that was their passion. And that rubbed off on us in terms of just that, that following Jesus was a real thing. It was an active thing. It was yeah. a passionate thing that you, you absolutely got stuck into and, Amazing. and you led others in. Yeah. I love that. So, you know, in that entrepreneurial space and stuff, you know, like you're going through school, like did you get many opportunities within school to start leading things or, you know, like when you were maybe like transitioning into university or? Yeah, so n- not so much in school, I would say I probably did lead things in SU and different things, but I wasn't, 
I was resting with my faith. I mean, I was committed to my faith at school. I never mm. had the guts to rebel, I suspect, yeah, is the reality. Sure. Um, but I'm not sure I understood how it all sat together for me. I used to be able, back when I was a kid, to be tr <laughs> to travel on your parents' passport until you were 16. Yeah. Uh, you don't do that anymore. But I guess I was doing that a bit with my faith. I, I was following you, but I didn't really know what that meant for me. Yeah. I was probably a bit of a later developer. So university was when it kicked in. I went to Dundee in Scotland, up yeah, the road, studied on. there. Um, so loved it. Had a had G a great jam time. Jam in journalism. Oh yeah, the Jays of Dundee yeah. for sure. The city of discovery and all that. Uh, I haven't been back since. It's apparently upgraded massively. But it, um, it has actually. It's some place. Uh, like, so sure. 20, 20 odd years ago, it was great. We loved it. All right, and had a great time. But and there, I probably got more roles of leadership in terms of CU, just as I was studying law. Uh, probably began to step more into kind of what leadership roles look like. Yeah. Um, and probably just because of what had been developed in my own life, it, I, you didn't feel like, hey, I want to lead. It's just I, I probably knew a bit more, was a bit further on the journey, had some more yeah. experiences than some other people, uh -huh. uh, thought through some stuff maybe a bit more and had been fed into by other people. I now look back and realize how many people have prayed into me, had spoken into my life, mm. had led me. Um, and I'm talking like the little ladies and the quiet folks in the church who yeah. now I'm going, actually, I owe you so much. Yeah, you yeah. carried me through some times when I probably didn't have this stuff together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned there that you were you were studying law. Yeah. Um, and actually, um, we were we were just having a kind of thing earlier on and we were having a bit of a chat in there. And you said a really interesting thing, which was that, you know, you could be sitting in a, a, in a courtroom and you would really be, you know, having a go at each other, really chasing each other down. But then you take your wig off, take the hat off, you know, and then you're your your best of mates outside the court, but then you'd be straight back into it. How how does that shape your your leadership style and the way that you do things? Do you think that's affected it at all or Yeah, I think it has. I think probably I mean, I probably had some of that personality type and then the law has exaggerated or accentuated that, depending on how you look at it. A certain amount of objectivity. We're trained to kind of see a set of facts to process them and sort of step back first before we get emotionally involved you mm. sort of step back and in court work uh, so when I became a barrister I remember the wig and the gown you know people were like talking at that time about getting rid of them and one of the older barristers said never do that don't get rid of them you're like well why what's the big issue you said well one when you're young 21 22 year old you kind of look ageless when you stick on a white horsehair wig and yeah. um, so she said one then people don't understand how young you are and secondly you'll never you'll never justify the the excessive fees that you charge if you just look normal people <laughs> pay you because of that but the other thing was as you say then you went in and did battle to an extent it was like a, a costume you put on yeah. Um, and a little bit like an actor, but then you did your battle, then you would have a great conversation with somebody over lunch and then back on with the wig and go and we go to do battle again. And I suppose that part of it was um, being a barrister absolutely helped me in terms of leadership. So, you, I mean, in terms of arguing, but in a positive way, I mean, making an argument, making a yeah. case, also engaging with clients and leading them as a relatively young person. He was right, the wig and the gown, you know, a 40, 50 year old person mm -hmm. would come to me and they want my advice. They're paying for my advice and my engagement. Yeah. And actually, I was, you know, the, the, the wig and the gown gave you a certain authority to do that. But it did teach me a little bit of objectivity to step back from an incident or some, some, something going on and say, well, what's the underlying issue here? Mm. What's the root cause? And that's the bit I think is helpful. I need to be careful personally that I don't emotionally detach too far because mm. actually we're emotional beings, we're storied beings, yeah, and that's hugely yeah. important. But there are moments on some of the, the sort of more uh, hot button issues out in our culture that we need to look back and say okay objectively what's happening here mm. what's the underlying trend what's the deeper problem so that theologically and biblically we can actually engage it rather than emotionally just going oh my friends in this situation what do i do it's actually so what what is the situation what's what's the reality of what's going yeah. on 
So I think we can engage better in that moment, yeah. both pastorally, but also making sure that that's biblical and holding those two things together. Mm. Yeah, I love that. No, it's really, it's really interesting because obviously, you know, Nicky Gumbel was a barrister. You know, Stephen Foster, the current director of Alpha UK, you know, ex-barrister. You know, Sandy Miller was about, like, so, and within Alpha... All the best people, is that what you're telling me? Well, you know, I studied, <laughs> I studied a wee bit of law from a different position. Um, but, but, yeah, no, it's just, I just find it fascinating that, because I think, you know, so much of building a case, building an argument is, is actually fundamental to what we do within our Christian walk in life, but also within leadership, you know, like, we want, we want to be able to take all the facts... And present a case to somebody to say this is the best, this is the best route forward. Do you know? Yeah. But also, it was a great yeah. So I totally agree with that, and it was also a great place to meet people. So you meet people in, in particular situations. So you've got child custody cases, and especially as a young barrister, you get just thrown every case that nobody else wants and is yeah. too busy. So you're doing that. You're doing a matrimonial breakdown or or a dispute on that. Uh, then the next day you're doing a criminal case of somebody mm. caught in possession or an assault case. Then the next day you're in the civil courts to do with some sort of technical contract dispute or a, a chancery matter to do with a banking resolution or some yeah. mortgage payment stuff and you meet business people you meet civil servants you're meeting people as their marriages are kind of being torn apart you're meeting people coming in and out of the criminal justice system yeah. and at every level so it's just a, a phenomenal kind of life moment just to yeah. see people often at a deep point of need um but to learn to kind of read people especially when you're doing yeah, evidence yeah. and cross-examining somebody you begin to read who's telling the truth, who's who's not telling the truth in that moment. You know, you're not just trying to catch them out, you're reading the person, mm. which I think is a huge skill for people to learn. Absolutely. Particularly in a more online digital age, like the ability to read people. Yeah. People say that with Tinder and all, people just swipe right, swipe left, whatever. And you don't get used to the rejection of having to go up to somebody and kind of nervously say, look, maybe, you know, do you fancy yeah. going out on a date? <laughs> yeah. We've lost that ability to like put yourself on the line. And people yeah. then say that we don't, some young people don't want to over-stereotype, but aren't able to do the, the sales thing where, you know, you have to get ready for rejection. Yeah. Like that's just the reality. And if you can just swipe right, swipe left and do everything there, you don't get used to that. You have to meet people in difficult points and read people and learn how to read a situation, understand who's in need, who's kicking back, not because they disagree with you, but because there's something underneath. Yeah, and if absolutely. you are miss, if you miss that and you start arguing with them about that, you miss, actually, this is a cry for help for yeah. somebody. And, and it's the whole non-verbal cues thing, isn't it? You know, like I was a bouncer, actually, for a great many years. So I studied body language. That's, that's what you do. You know, you spend all your time, you know, and you're not having the right trainers is just an excuse. It's normally because of <laughs> something else that you've triggered, you know, but, but it is, it's that reading people. Um, massive skill. Yep. Anyway, let's let's jump uh, jump forward a little bit. So you know you've been doing the barrister thing, and then you end up studying uh, um, regents over in Canada. Like, yeah. what, what happened there? Like, was there a? So when I was probably about sixteen, seventeen, I remember a number of different events. I felt right some sort of call or engagement into ministry, and uh, I spoke to a number of people and said, "Look, eighteen, you need to go and do something else. Go and study. Go and yeah. do whatever you're passionate about." Mm. Don't become a minister at 18 years of age with no life skill. And they were totally right. So I was interested in the law. I'm probably old enough at something like LA Law and programs like that were probably more shipping of me, the tail yeah. end of Alan McBeal. I don't know. I love the idea of courtroom and law. Yeah. So I uh, thought, well, look, I'll follow that passion, study law. But I knew at, at some stage I was going to do something else. Yeah. Um, so after five years in that, I... Um, Switched just, I was just getting married. Uh, my wife Rose and I were both interested in studying, and we looked around and uh, found this great place near Whistler where you could ski and snowboard and had Sound some great profs. Yeah. It was, I mean, Vancouver's a beautiful city, and I mean, I hear lots of other people in this long journey. We've kind of stumbled across a bit, 
Start, found this place Regent. What really appealed to us was it was not a seminary. In fact, its tagline at the time, this was 20 years ago, was the unseminary, as in it wasn't just training ministers. Yeah. Mainly its heart was, it was actually the Scotsman who founded it, James Houston. And uh, during the war, uh, Second World War, he'd been a lecturer at Edinburgh University, but at night he'd been the air raid warden. And he'd said he'd kind of done these two jobs. Yeah. And he was thinking then about his faith. And he said, why do so many Christians kind of fly with one wing? We, we take our, in his case, geography, yeah. in my case, law, wherever up to a certain level, we go and try and get experience and qualifications. And then we keep our faith at like Sunday school level. Yeah. He said, like, we need to balance up. So if you're going to take your, whatever you're doing in life, you're passionate about to whatever level you take that, why would you not take your faith up to a similar Such level? Such a great image. I so it's great. That. And he was just so good about it. So he was a brethren, Scotsman, who um, wanted to train people largely to go back into the marketplace. He yeah. said, come and do a year or two, get your faith up to the same level yeah. and then go back into your nursing, your teaching, your bouncing, whatever yeah. it is you're doing, but come then with a better lens. So, mm. so we went there and uh, studied and just had a blast. It was Jaya Packer was there, Eugene Peterson, Gordon Fee, just so many incredible lectures. Yeah, yeah. And their passion was, again, to release people back into the marketplace primarily, yeah. some for the church, but most to go back in with a better understanding of how faith connects to everyday life. Yeah, I love that. So, such good people as well. Fee, like, Fee and Stuart, like, how to read the Bible for all it's worth, is just, is it, is it why has everybody not forced to read that? <laughs> Do you know, like, it just makes a difference, right? Do you know, it totally and, does. You know, in the message from Patterson. And Peterson, yeah, yeah. Peterson, so, I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, some of the stuff Eugene's written is absolutely amazing, connecting with so many different people. And, I mean, he did the long, hard yards, Eugene. He was a, a pastor, a small-town pastor for 25 years before he went to Regent to start lecturing. And then people now kind of catch the tail end of his ministry yeah. when he wrote all the stuff. But the message came because he was doing a small group Bible study on Ephesians. Yeah. And uh, the guys were struggling to understand it. So he said, right, I'm going to print out in English, and then I'll print a couple of different translations, and then we'll print out in the Greek with a kind of direct translation. And we said, so we look for the bits in English where it all seems to disagree. And then we go to the Greek and find out. And then they sort of basically ended up, he helped guide them to write their own translation of Ephesians yeah. through. And that was the first bit of the message story. Amazing. So it was really, it was, it was always about resourcing the church, the small group in that moment, yeah. rather than I want to do something amazing. Yeah. And I think that's just really helpful to hear his heart of what he was yeah, wanting yeah. to do. I never actually knew that story. That's really cool. Yeah, so he's amazing there. Like Eugene was the quietest man, not the best lecturer, to be totally honest, yeah. an amazing writer, but his heart and his passion for spirituality and prayer and the way he wanted to lead was incredible. I mean, I say, I don't think he ever had more than 200 people in his church, yeah. but look at everybody who wanted to go and see him yeah. and spend time with him from Bono to most church leaders to so many people he connected with and he didn't grow a mega church. Yeah, That wasn't his yeah. thing. So again, it's just that rewiring, what does leadership look like in yeah. that moment? It's proximity to God. It was yeah. his relationship and seeking the presence of God. And then out of that later in life, he did rewrite the, the, the you know the bring the message translation mm -hmm. but that was never his heart it was yeah. that was only to serve the church in that way yeah, that's beautiful so. i love it i actually um i once uh, went when i was studying i studied at the baptist college here and uh, we got the opportunity to go and hear jürgen maltman speak <laughs> yes. and i was like oh that'd be amazing you know like we really love it was the worst thing I've ever been like. It was just that old German guy reading the notes off a page. You know, I was just I've like, never, I don't understand a word he, 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 or he uh, writes. I mean, it takes me ages to try and understand Moltmann. He's so complex. Yeah, I mean, he is genius, but I need somebody else to interpret him for yeah. me. You almost, you almost <laughs> need to read Wolf to understand Moltmann, and then yeah, you need somebody else that. to interpret. And then I need somebody to help. <laughs> yeah, take Wolf. To, I mean, Wolf says some great stuff on work too, and about how we think about that. But it's like it's dense stuff. Yeah, and then we need to unpack it. So yeah. I like you. I think I'm a bit of a translator of some of those guys down to the next level. Somebody unpack it for me, and then I'm happy to try and 
take it down. But we need somebody yeah. doing the deep work, but some of them yeah. are de- so difficult to understand. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, I'm with you totally. So, so you study there. You come, yeah. and, then, and then what's the next step? What happens after that? Did you go back to being a barrister? or No, so at the end of our time in Regent, um, so in the last year of that, a guy called Paul Williams came along who uh, was doing the Marketplace Institute mm. there. And his he probably opened my eyes to... Um, faith and, and the public square. So I was doing the AMDiv, the more traditional kind of pastoral yeah. route regent, um, almost countered everything, but I, I thought the options were missionary or minister and I didn't want to be a missionary. Yeah. So I was going to do the minister thing. And then I, I did actually kind of basically fail pastoral care and had to blag my way through it. I wasn't brilliant at pastoral care, <laughs> yeah. it's fair to say. Um, so uh, Paul Williams opened my eyes to this kind of faith and public square engagement. He'd been an economist and was running the marketplace stuff and helping business people and others. Mm-hmm. And he did some policy work. And so he sent me to a place in Cambridge to afterwards called the Jubilee Centre that did kind of faith and public policy and family work. Uh, anyway, we came back, yeah, try to find a different couple of different roles. Th- these guys opened the door. Um, my wife and I both went there for a year or two doing kind of research around the importance of family, mm-hmm. the cost of family breakdown, different things, but all around basically trying to apply the Bible into the public square. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, and that got me really passionate. It was a tough two years actually being there. We thought we were there for three months or six months, so we didn't. We kind of joined a church where some friends were. It might not have been our natural home. We kept then it kept extending our time, and we weren't sure whether we were putting down roots sure. or not. So we felt quite disconnected from the place, which was hard for us. And it was away from the sea. I've always lived near the sea and love the sea. Yeah. Anyway, but the point was, I suppose it was a bit of a leadership journey. As I look back, it was incredibly forming for me, uh-huh. even though it was a difficult season. Yeah. And I think we go through that. Like we work some jobs that are pretty average. You know, it wasn't well paid. It wasn't the most exciting job, but actually, it shaped a lot of my thinking. And it was character building. It yeah. was a kind of discipling process. Yeah. And again, I talked to some young people and said, like, I, I know we all want the dream job, and I know we want to change the world in six months. Um, but actually, it doesn't happen that way. And sometimes we just have to work through some stuff that isn't the mm-hmm. most fun, but it yeah. will shape uh, and embed some character in us and form some stuff that actually later it now shapes so much of my thinking. The importance of relationships, yeah. framed on the relationship with Jesus, but actually how we then the importance of marriage and family and extended family, community relationships, mm-hmm. how businesses use relationships, the importance of that. And the negative of that is that we instead then have, um, like in schools, we all go to league tables because we don't trust the schools and we all have performance indicators and annual reviews and everything. It's all about, we don't really trust people to do the job. So then we have all these tick box exercises mm-hmm. to check everybody. And they were saying the cost of the breakdown of relationship there is so high. Um, you know, because we don't trust the school that's doing a good job, so we, we have to have all these tests and our hospitals, we have to have these waiting yeah. list tests and everybody. And, and there's no time to actually just build good relationships mm. with people that are so important in education and healthcare and in business. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, we did a couple of years of public policy work there that yeah. really began to take me from the theology space to the public theology side yeah, of that. Yeah, I love that. Which is where I get passionate, yeah. probably more so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, you mentioned the marketplace there, and I, and I think that's a really, really good... Um, it's a it's a really good way of understanding because actually you know so that's what we're doing isn't it you know we're in this public square space that doesn't it doesn't really exist anymore you know there's arguments can be made that that's what social media is or isn't feels a bit more aggressive um but actually it's how do we have these conversations with people where we're at isn't it you know it's like yeah, and it can be the school gate, or it can be on the radio, or as we were just before we come on this, we're saying like podcasts and videos and, and Facebook and some of the blogs and smaller sites and are as influential as the big mainstream media. So you can have this in so many different spaces, mm. uh, and our Twitter and our social media will be one part of that. But we've also got the school gate, depending on what age you are, the supermarket checkout, or the rugby yeah. club or wherever. We're yeah. meeting people in different spaces. And we all know what it can be like to be on the on the side of a kind of negative reaction. It only yeah. takes a small 
person, if you're waiting tables and you've got one customer who's just a complete pain, they can really shape your whole day. But you can also be reframed the other way. If one customer chooses to be nice, leaves a tip, engages you, chats with you, says, can I pray with you or something, you know, just when I'm saying grace or just so many simple ways to to shift that conversation forward or to pay for the coffee of the person behind Mm. and it freaks them out and they're like, what's going on here? Pay for their parking or different, these small things that can shift the day. So rather than always going on the negative, like the public square is arguably, I think, getting bigger and bigger. And Twitter and other spaces can be a nightmare, but I'm, you know, they can also, we don't have to engage on their terms. Exactly. Now, so we, we can reframe some of those conversations. We can be positive and engage. We can still challenge on mm-hmm. some of the issues. I mean, I will speak about things like transgender and abortion and marriage and some of those more difficult issues. But I want to try and do that in a reframing way into a conversation. I want yeah. to take a hopeful narrative and a gospel narrative into that. I want to engage in kind of missional public theology, I want to call it. Yeah, yeah. All theology should be public. It should also all be missional. Yeah. All the conversations we should be having are pointing people towards Jesus. Mm. That's the change. I, I can't expect somebody to shift their views on, on abortion or marriage or something without first encountering Jesus. You know, that, that's got to be shifted. To, to, get them to change their mind and then say, oh, then now you're good enough, come and see Jesus. Like yeah. that undermines the gospel. <laughs> I want you to meet yeah. Jesus. And then in the discipleship process, there's going to be some stuff we're going to shave off around our individualism, our greed, our consumerism, as well as our sexual ethics and dot, dot, dot. Yeah. You know? I love that. And, and I think that's something that we've, we've, we've messed about with in the past, isn't it? You know, we want people to get on page with what we believe first. And you're like, well, actually, you know, let's, let's go on the journey together first. Let's like get to know each other. Let's, Let's find commonality and then, you know, anyway, it's a whole different matter. Um, but I want to <laughs> get caught up because um, obviously you you were at Vineyard for a while. Yes. And Vineyard's, you know, my my spiritual home, you know, like I know that you were there. Like how did you, how did you end up going from, you know, this little place in Cambridge over back home to the, the alleged promised land that is Northern The promised land that is Northern Ireland and yeah. particularly the North Coast. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of years in Cambridge doing that work, loved that, but um, our... First child was coming along. My wife had signed up to do a PhD at Cambridge. She is the brains of the operation in theology. But number one kid coming, and we just thought we're not we're not anchored here in Cambridge. We don't sure. have the networks and connections. So uh, we moved back home. I continued to commute a little bit and work there, but it was research work, so we could do that from a distance. And we just thought, well, family are all at home. We had a house and a space there, potentially. So we thought, right, we'll go there and see how this is going to unfold. Um, and so we did that with our, our first child, Karen, being born. That was about 10 years ago. And then... Uh, we went to a smaller church. My brother was very involved in Vineyard and then they were doing a building project and changing, kind of upscaling and needed a, an exact pastor operations guy. Mm-hmm. And they said, but I do it. And I said, no, thanks. And because uh, I was doing a bit of teaching at the Bible College. And then that had ended. Uh, and I, this is the first time I'd ever ended a job without something to go to. Yeah. So I stopped that for a variety of reasons. And, and normally, I would, as I say, never move until I got the next yeah, thing yeah. lined up. So I was in a nothing. And then he kept saying, but you, you need to be the exact. I said, Get, you guys in Vineyard are a bit mad. Uh, and they said, but we need you to do this job. So I met the pastor on the Tuesday. And by the Sunday, I was their executive pastor. Wow. Okay. Um, so, I mean, they, we knew of each other and various things. So I loved that. It was great. We were doing the building. We were kind of moving our staff from sort of 10 to 12 or whatever mm. up to more like 20. You take that step change around that. Got to lead through some of that. Got to work alongside Alan Scott, who again, brilliant, pushing my theological understanding. Because Vineyard were doing some stuff, I was like, guys, this is right on the boundaries. But any yeah. other church, I'd have probably gone and said, yeah, I kind of know that stuff. I've thought about it. I was going, well, you're practically doing stuff that yeah. tests my theology. This is great. 
I'm not saying I'm going to agree with everything nor disagree, but yeah. you're making me think, and yeah. I, I love that. And you're making me push my practices out absolutely. to the limits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're absolutely passionate about the lost. We want to see people here. We believe the supernatural is here and now, mm. and seeing that, I was going, wow, this is fantastic. So, really shaped me, and uh, really again fed into my leadership journey, and probably shifted me from my self-reliance because mm. I pretty capable person that trained in various fields mm. and could do a lot of stuff kind of off my own bat. And that was when God was interested in it. He was like, you mm. need to rely on me. How do we push that out so that mm. you push into the supernatural into spaces you can't control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was the next probably journey in the leadership was that way being pushed. And, and that was hard, but really, really good. Yeah. So loved it. Yeah. I, like, yeah. I just, so obviously I... I was part of Glasgow Vineyard and like a lot of connections because Alan and the guys went over, you know, and there's a famous story of his brother telling them that he shouldn't do it because it was going to be a disaster. And, you know, <laughs> turns out that it wasn't, um, <laughs> you know, and, and actually Alan's now gone back to the mothership, as you said earlier on. Yes, Alan. Yeah. You know, and have you been over to see him yet? Are you going over? No, no, we haven't been over to Anaheim. So we turn ahead to Vancouver, just some of the connections we have there. Yeah. Uh, we love going back both into region and into that kind of learning space. Um, I'm a constant learner. I'm an Enneagram 5, if anybody's an Enneagram person. Sure, so okay. I'm a, yeah. I love digging down into the information, trying to process that and understand it, and then hopefully teach and, and, and kind of communicate that to others. So yeah. love going back to Top Up and back there next week, actually still serving the board of Regent. I just, again, love their vision for that bringing together of um, the, the faith in the marketplace and putting yeah. people into that space. So uh, remain passionate about kind of theological yeah. education. And that doesn't have to be at a theological college, but I just yeah. keep sending people read and think, come on, uh -huh. let's, let's take our faith seriously. Like, yeah. let's get engaged. This is not a simple invite Jesus into your heart, twiddle your thumbs until you die and go to heaven. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a heck of a lot more than that. Yeah, and, and it needs to be more. And, and I think for the for the generation coming through, you know, Gen Z or whatever, you yeah. know, they, they're hungry for that. Do you know, and I, and actually, I think we we are the people that can provide that that space, that knowledge. You know, like it, it's not a lifeboat mentality anymore. Christendom's gone. Do you yeah, know? Yeah, I totally. And I think we shrunk. We 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 took the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, and we shrunk it down to kind of fall and redemption. You're really bad. And here's the magic ticket into heaven. And uh, so we start in the wrong place with that. You're really bad. That's not where the yeah. Bible starts. And we sell a kind of saving of souls magic ticket. And, and that's like leaves people twiddling their thumbs, literally nowhere, nowhere yeah. to go, pie in the sky when you die um, and, and, and nothing to eat while you wait. There's, there's a better way of phrasing that, isn't it? Cake on the plate while you wait. Yeah. Where, what are we giving? Whereas the fullest, and so then, then saying you're really bad, starting with the fall isn't acceptable anymore. So yeah. now we just drink it to Jesus loves you. Yeah. And that's such a thin version of the gospel. It's it's, it's rubbish. It's, yeah. it's near enough heresy. So we're better. What we need is the richer story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That mm. God made this world. Everybody's a divine image bearer. That we're wired for relationships. We have a sense of purpose. And then we're moving towards the new heavens and a new earth. You know, the recreation yeah. of all things. So we are concerned about the climate out there and climate change. Yeah. We're concerned about artificial intelligence. What am I doing about gender and about race and about sexuality and about so many things. But because our bodies are important and integral to who we are, because mm. this world is important, God created and is going to redeem it, all things. So I think we, my generation above the boomers, I'm not a boomer and an exer, but yeah. we did a disservice by shrinking the gospel down to yeah. a very simplified, simplistic gospel. Yeah, You're really bad. Jesus died for you and saved you good as far as it goes but the rich and then the quarter version that jesus loves you is rubbish the fuller richer version engages in some of the issues that mm. everybody wants in particular yeah. gen z and others a fuller story yeah. and we also distilled it into propositional truth 
here's X and here's Y and that leads to Z. And for lawyers like me, I actually, that works for me to some extent, but yeah. it's not what the Bible says. It's a story. Yeah. We're story people. We love yeah. stories. That's the way we communicate. Everything is stories. Absolutely. And so many people kind of distilled out these little propositional statements and these doctrinal statements. And there's a place for parts of that, but the fundamental is whoever has the best story wins. That's what yeah. the storytellers say. There's a, there's a story of Steve Jobs coming into the office and saying that very thing, like, um, who's the most important person in our culture? And people are like, oh, it's Nelson Mandela or it's somebody else. And he goes, no, it's the storyteller. The yeah. storyteller carries the culture of yeah. an organization or anything beyond. And he's right. And we have a story. It's a biblical story, mm. not a biblical set of propositional yeah. truths. And if we tell that fuller story, um, I think it's one, it's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Two, it starts in the right place. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And there is a point where we will engage with people about the fallenness, the brokenness, the loneliness, yeah. whatever's going on, but that's not where we start. No. And so often when people s share the gospel and some of the more controversial issues, they go straight to, here's the problem, here's yeah. where you're wrong. And then we wonder why people don't resonate. Was, yeah. that's, that's not where the Bible starts. No. And so we need to honor the text better because often yeah. it's more biblical conservative people are saying this is the right place no 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 the bible starts in a different place and yeah. it's got a different arc to it yeah and i think we will catch people with that story in a world that's fractured and broken and people say oh there's no space for the meta narrative the big story anymore yeah. of course there is because otherwise people are lonely and individualized yeah. and atomized and don't know what to do and they hope they fit into some yeah. bigger arc of story yeah. i couldn't agree with you more i think the meta narrative that that overarching theme of love you know, that you read all the way through, you know, like the Old Testament to New, just that continual, like, you know, that that concept that there's more to this and it's about relationship and it's about going deeper and it's about taking this text and applying it to life, you know, not just not not just like a one-dimensional approach. Do you know, I just think it's, it's so fundamental to, to everything that's happening in society today. You know, you just look around and, you know, we're talking about people like even some of the things we were talking about earlier on today with like transgender issues, you know, um, like homosexuality, like where where do we come with this? How do you know? How do you even speak about divorce today? How do you speak about you know anything at all? Same sex, whatever the issue is, you know, we need we can talk about these things, but it's in a it's in a it's out of conversation rather than antagonization. Do you know? Do you I think so, absolutely. And if we anchor it in the story and we think about the framework better, then I think when something like artificial intelligence comes along, we don't panic and go, gosh, new issue, need to rethink this from square one. You go, no, we've got a story that tells us that like, we and our identity is based as divine image bearers. Mm. And any act of abuse against another human being is an act of high treason against God. Like that, everybody's got value and dignity. So anything that undermines that within the artificial intelligence um, program is going to be problematic. That we're wired for relationships. Mm. So you know AI is going to do some really good stuff, but AI that undermines that and brings around sex robots and stuff, you're going to go, yeah. no, that's problematic. Because the guys predicted by 2050 that uh, more sexual interactions will, will be between a human and a robot than between a human and a human. So you're like, okay, so we have a response to that and then it's going to change our workplace environment yeah. our sense of purpose but if we understand our gifts and who we are in that moment rather than saying well all of my identity is wrapped in this one job that I have yeah. no actually you're a gifted individual and yes AI is going to change that but it doesn't mean that you don't still have a sense of purpose in this world yeah. then I think again we can reframe some of those conversations that are coming and not panic and think we're back to square one new issue what do we do well yeah. actually we learned some stuff in these other conversations that the Bible is always addressed right from Genesis chapter 1 who are you? You know, how do you relate to each other and why are you here? Yeah. 
It's fascinating. Uh, mate, I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> we, we are rapidly running out of time. And uh, I'd really like to ask you a, a kind of key question that, I, that I've been asking loads of people in these podcasts. But who um, who is the leader that you have been most influenced by that you would think the stuff that they provided for me has really shaped who I am today? So it's uh, easy to answer. It might not be the most helpful for you, but it's my dad uh, by okay. far and away in my case. My dad actually died about three or four months ago, and that was a big kind of moment in my life and the life of my brothers. Um, he was an entrepreneurial leader in terms of business, uh, led across the Christian sector. Um, I guess he taught me the importance of relationships and people. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was really key. That I mean, sales, business, all that he did was always about people. So that yeah. reading of people, engaging yeah. people, bringing people with you. Uh, was a massive part of that. Yeah. He was a kind of risk taker and entrepreneur, sure. and we need more of that, I think, in the church space. Amen. Um, like, there's so many. He just sidestepped committees all the time and just kind of ignored them or worked his way through and around them. Yeah. And uh, we need to, you know, release the entrepreneurs, the church planters, those who are going to take the risks. Yeah. Like, we're a faith-based community. We should be uh, taking risks. And for some faith. reason, yeah. that we're, we're not. We seem yeah. so cautious and so conservative uh, in the way that we, we do things. And I guess maybe he was in it for the long haul. Like he built relationships with him for a long, long period. And we yeah. got this chance at his funeral. Just he had people from the business world and so many different sectors that he'd been in. Uh, I mean, he ultimately goes OBE for some stuff for charity and business and different things. And people so came from all sorts of spaces. We just got to like share the gospel mm. because he's always passionate. So, right, he had a kind of stroke. We thought when I was away in Vancouver in the summer and then turned out it was a tumor. We got a kind of couple of month window with him. Now, no, it was never the full him, but... In that time, it kind of like it was like everything else was stripped away. And, you know, he was a big business guy and different things, but he didn't care. He was like, just yeah. take me out in the wheelchair anywhere, let's go. But he had two questions. He said, basically, if you don't know Jesus, why not? Yeah. And then he said, if you do know Jesus, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And it was funny, the guys were like, how does he almost know which is which? And he said, well, he's always known that, but he probably wasn't as blunt. He was yeah. pretty blunt, but he got more blunt. Yeah. He was just, if you don't know, why do you not know Jesus? And it yeah. really challenged people. And then if you do, you really wanted to push. He was always looking to disciple people, disciple people further and have intentional conversations. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you going to do about it? And so my challenge has been with some of my friends is you're at a party, you're at an event, you're just out hanging out with people. He had a great way quite quickly just to move to something a bit more important than the conversation than the weather and the kids and whatever else. Yeah. You'd just be like, what's going on? What's really happening? What's God saying to you? Yeah. What are you doing? And I don't think we've very many people in our culture able to do mm. that. Just to gently, but nonetheless, intentionally shift the conversation. So probably my biggest learning, that final one, is how do I shift conversations I'm in yeah. to be really intentional and ask people, what's God doing in your life? And, and kind of what are you going to do about it? Yeah, like, yeah. God's got something for you. He's, he's on you. And we've got far too many apathetic Christians and we need more drive, more intentionality, mm. more vision in this season. Yeah. Not particularly my generation in the 40s just stepping back and going, oh, it's all too busy with kids and different commitments and work yeah. and stuff. We're like, no, we've got to be intentional in the yeah. conversations we're having. Yeah, love it. Mate, thank you so much. We will be praying for you guys at EA. You definitely need it with, um, you know, Kieran and Fred <laughs> up here. Um, but yeah, no, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, just been great chatting. And thanks so much for all you're doing, mate. You're really so welcome. It. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Thanks. Cheers, man.